Let me pray real quick. Father, we're approaching your words, so we ask for you to speak to us, to humble us, to uh, help us to grasp the import of something. We might not think all of this applies to us, but it actually is extremely important, especially in terms of our, our response to your grace to us and the forgiveness that we have in Christ. Pray you'd help us to understand and be able to apply great truths this morning in Christ's name. Amen. So we're in the middle of the opening part of 1 John where the apostle takes three false claims, um, claims made by a first century cult, and he knocks them down sort of one by one. So as an apostle of Jesus, John, a, a man who not only knew Jesus, but was chosen by Jesus and endowed by Jesus with authority and apostolic authority in all things pertaining to life and doctrine, we can trust him uh, with what he says. So um, apostles were like prophets, only even higher in authority. The New Testament actually says prophets are subject to the apostles. So um, John is dealing with uh, a cult that has invaded some of his churches that he was overseeing in Asia Minor. And this group, we've talked about them if you've been with us, they were called Gnostics. And they hijacked Jesus' name to build a, a new faith based not on scripture, not on apostolic teaching, but on their own ideas. Basically Greek philosophy, uh, twisted in a new way, Platonic philosophy. And um, they mixed that with their own really twisted reinterpretations of scripture to build a new faith that was based on this philosophy, not on apostolic teaching. So all of that's what's going on. That's what cults do. They take an unbiblical idea or a set of ideas that they like and they selectively rework the scriptures or twist them out of context to fit these ideas and create kind of a new religion. That's very common. And then they try to lure gullible Christians into uh, their group. So. John is writing to the church because this is already starting to happen and he wants to help believers stand firm when this cult shows up at the door. Whether they wear little badges and white shirts or not, it doesn't matter. It's, it's their teaching is what matters. And uh, get off the bicycle and come on in. But um, they, those cults, like modern cults do, they actually aim at people that profess faith in Christ. Um, they don't go to uh, Skid Row or, or to the mission or something like that. They don't do that kind of work. They're actually knocking on every door to find people that are somewhat religious, usually uninformed religious people that are vaguely Christian, would identify themselves as Christian to bring their, their truths. That's what they, the way they would see it. And in a free country like ours, there's nobody to stop them. So um, false religions proliferate in America. All the big modern cults started here. You know, um, it's kind of amazing, but typical actually. But the specific errors that John is dealing with are still around, but in kind of different forms. In fact, they even show up on sort of what I would call the fringe edges of what some people would claim to be as Bible Christians. Well, I'm a Bible Christian, but they share some of these ideas that John is dealing with, even though in a different way than the Gnostics did. So it's still important to pay close attention to this because you might bump into somebody you certainly are going to bump into people that listen to people that teach this, whether you, they, your friends believe it or not. But so it's pretty important stuff. So let's review. Uh, last week we talked about the first false claim, the first erroneous claim. Um, and that is that um, living in a manner completely at odds with God, uh, the God you profess to know, 
he says these things are true, uh, these are commandments to be obeyed, and you say, I don't have to obey those. Um, they're, they're not important. It's just fine to be a disobedient believer. Each error in 1 John here, and starting at verse 5, each error is introduced with this phrase, if we say. So the first one was in verse 5. John says, this is the message which we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say, okay, here it comes, this is the first mistake, that we have fellowship with him, the God who is light, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So you simply can't walk in darkness and claim you're in fellowship with God who is light. You cannot do that. I mean, you can do it, but you're in a lot of trouble for doing that. You just can't do it. It's a false claim. God and me, God and me, we're, we're, we're like that. We are close. I love him. He loves me. We're buds. That sounds great, but it's not true. It's a lie if you're walking in darkness and you say that. And the Gnostics didn't have any interest in moral teachings, uh, sin and righteousness and things like that. They hardly ever talk about sin. So that's a false claim. Jesus said, it's always good to go back to him. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you don't love him, then you don't. But to say you love him and not keep them, that's a really serious problem. You never want to build your life on a lie, especially a life with God. That's so foolish. It's foolish because you're trusting that God is not who he says he is and does not mean the things he says. That's what you're trusting when you do that. It's trusting that you will not give an account to God who is light and in whom there is no darkness at all. You're trusting that that's not going to be the truth when you meet him someday. So don't be foolish. Don't be a hypocrite. That never ends well because God is the one who determines our end. And so if you're lying even to yourself about who he is, you're making a big mistake. So we talked about that last week. So now we're on to the second and third claims which are related. We'll do both of those today. So claim two we find in verse eight. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then the third claim in verse 10 says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So they sound kind of the same at first glance, verse 8 and verse 10 there, but there's a difference. And the difference has to do with grammar. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about Greek, Greek grammar while I'm popping and crackling. I don't know why I'm doing that, but... So claim two, if we say we have no sin. So that's a present tense verb, um, we have. And as I pointed out last time, present tense in Greek doesn't just mean it's happening now. It, ha it mainly has the idea of something that's ongoing. So you always have to remember that. So um, a present tense suggests action that is continuing. So if I say um, that I'm in an ongoing way, I have no sin. That's the idea there. So it could mean three things. We have no sin can mean there's no such thing as sin, obviously, if I say I have no sin. It could mean I've never sinned, and so I still have no sin. Or it could mean I have no sin now. Like, I have achieved a state of sinlessness, 
and I'm beyond that sort of thing. So, and I think number three is the right one. I think that's the one John has in mind because it fits what's going on here with everything he says. So it's saying, I have come to a place where I have ceased from sin through spiritual progress. Oh gosh, I'm having all kinds of troubles up here. <laughs> Wait till the pulpit falls over. <laughs> So it's saying, I have come to a place where I have ceased sinning through spiritual progress. I've defeated Satan in my life. I've conquered my flesh. I am now free from sin. That's what that is saying. Does that make sense? Do you know anybody like that? <laughs> the Gnostics would probably say, we have ceased from sin through gnosis. Gnosis means knowledge. And they believe that if you learn secret knowledge, secret wisdom imparted by Jesus, then you can become free from the flesh in their bodies. So um, kind of a weird thing. But honestly, they just didn't talk about sin much. That really wasn't an interest to them. In fact, there's a second century gospel that was found, um, a Gnostic gospel. So they would write their own gospels. So in the first century, the apostles wrote the four gospels. In the second century, the Gnostics started writing their own, and they would take famous names and stick them on their Gospels. And so archaeologists have dug up a few of those, so we actually have some of them. And one of them is the Gospel of Thomas, which is considered one of the earliest. And people say, well, you know, there were all kinds of Christianity back then and different. Yes, that's true in the second century. There were all kinds of Christianity, and it was starting in the first century. That's why John's dealing with it here at the end of the first century. Yes, there are cults. There are cults then. There are cults now. That's certainly true. But if you read the Gospel of Thomas, it'll, like, wig you out. It's so weird. It's so different. It's so completely not, it, nothing, e there's no even stories in it. There's no stories because it's not about God becoming man and living among us and sharing Christ, God with us so that we would come to know him through Christ. It's about secret knowledge, you know. So there's all kinds of sayings that are supposed to be from Jesus that are, some of them are sort of, spin-offs on something he said in the real Gospels, but a lot of them are weird. I'm going to sh share one weird one with you. Now, you might find this really profound, and I apologize if you do. <laughs> Here it is. So, so, this is a, so somebody asked Jesus, shall we then as children enter the kingdom? Now, what does the real Gospel say? Jesus said you must become like a child to enter the kingdom. So it's playing off of that idea in the real Gospels. So this is the Gospel of Thomas, right? And it wasn't written by Thomas. They just stuck his name on it. Shall we then as children enter the kingdom? Jesus said to them, so play attention now. This is really important for you to know. When you make the two one, and when you make the inside like the outside, and the outside like the inside, and the above like the below, and when you make the male and the female one and the same, so that the male not be male, nor the female, and when you fashion eyes in the place of an eye, and a hand in the place of a hand, and a foot in the place of a foot, and a likeness in the place of a likeness, then you will enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> it's kind of like a Buddhist cone thing. It's like something to drive your mind insane so you realize there's no truth. Or so, I, I guess. I don't know. But isn't that deep? That's deep. What it's deep in is another question. Huh? Yeah, well, that is like that. So obviously, we're talking about a very different Jesus when we're talking about the Gnostic Jesus, the, the Jesus they invented to teach these secret sayings. So can you just imagine if you were reading along in Matthew and you ran into that? I mean, it would be, what? 
Now, Jesus says some things that are a little hard to understand, but nothing like that. <laughs> nothing weird like that. Anyway, let's focus on um, what this verse 8 might mean in our time, because that's the, that's the Gnostic world. That's what the John was dealing with. But you're not going to meet a Gnostic, probably, right? There are a few around, but not very many at all. But we do have people that deny that they sin anymore. They say that they are They've conquered all that. They say there's no such thing. For one thing, if you're, if you're a materialist, like you only believe in the physical world, biology, and all of that, then you reject the idea of sin altogether, right? So obviously there's people like that. But John is talking to religious people, people who claim some sort of connection with Jesus. They would use his name about themselves. And are there Christians today who claim to be sinless? And there are. There are. Some of them are quite famous, the idea of, it's called Christian perfectionism. It's actually a doctrine that some churches hold. It's fairly common. It, it became common, especially through John Wesley, who was one of the great evangelists in the um, uh, 18th century, the 1700s. The found, he founded the Methodist Church. Now, Methodists don't believe that anymore, most Methodists, because they don't believe anything about sin and salvation anymore. I'm talking about the, the United Methodist Church. It just kind of gave up on all that stuff. That's why they just split the conservative churches and the Methodists that believe the Bible just left all that. But um, Wesley taught that a Christian could mature to a condition which he called being holy, not H-O-L-E-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y, right? Completely, wholly sanctified. Or they called it complete sanctification. You could be completely sanctified. He didn't like the term sinless perfection, so which is actually a good thing. But he acknowledged... Um, that we do have weaknesses, and those might show up in our life even if you've eradicated sin. But he thought you could eradicate intentional sin altogether. Now, he never claimed that for himself. I think he was too self-aware to do that. But he did believe it was possible. And he really focused on the heart as the foundation of all of this idea. He believed a person in their heart could be so God-centered, could love God so consistently that a person would never commit an intentional sin until they died. He believed that was possible. And so the Methodist Church has um, taught that, but as the Methodist Church became really successful in America and built, you know, they were a frontier, that was a frontier church, circuit-riding preachers on horseback, little simple log cabin churches, but when they became successful and the land got settled, they built glorious churches and became very formal and, um, and and then so a lot of the kind of old school Methodists were like oh, we're losing it we're losing our heart you know the Methodist idea of perfection they stopped teaching that and so other churches kind of sprang out other denominations sprang out of those Methodists and formed what were called holiness churches so there's still holiness churches around and um, some of them are Pentecostal holiness churches so there's actually a denomination Pentecostal holiness church but there's a lot of um, things so there's a Pentecostal version and then a non-Pentecostal version of, of holiness. One of the holiness churches that broke off from the Methodist church is called the Nazarene church. Some people in our church grew up Nazarene. They had that background. And um, in fact, my wife's family, they're all Nazarene. Her, her real family, she was, a, she was a foster child, but her real family that she discovered later, they're all Nazarene people, wonderful people. Um, but they would buy these doctrines. So I want to read to you the doctrinal statement of the Nazarene church with regard to this, because it's really well written and it's pretty informative. So this is a doctrinal statement. So you got to listen carefully. There are a couple of big words in there, theological words. I'll try to hit those as we go. But here's their, 
they're saying on sanctification, okay? We believe, now sanctification is being set apart for God and living a godly life, it's those ideas. We believe that sanctification is the work of God which transforms believers into the likeness of Christ. It is wrought by God's grace through the Holy Spirit in initial sanctification or regeneration, that's the new birth, simultaneous with justification. So when you become a Christian, you are set apart by God, the new birth comes, and you start this journey of becoming Christ-like. Hopefully that's true. I think every church could sign on to that doctrinal statement to that point and say yes. Then it says, it has a comma, then it says entire sanctification. And then it has another comma. Then it says, and the continued perfecting of the work of the Holy Spirit culminating in glorification. In glorification, we are fully conformed to the image of the Son. And glorification means when we go to heaven, we're perfected. So if you just lifted those two words that appear separate from everything else and in between commas, entire sanctification, you could, I think any Orthodox Christian, oh, I, could, I could say yes, that's, that's a good definition of sanctification. But they got those words in there. And then they spend several paragraphs explaining those two words because everybody would stop and go, what is that? What is entire sanctification? So here's how they explain it. We believe that entire sanctification is the act of God subsequent to regeneration, means following your being born again, that's what that means, by which believers are made free from original sin or depravity and brought into a state of entire devotement, that's their word, devotement to God, and the holy obedience of love made perfect. It is wrought by the baptism with or the infilling of the Holy Spirit and comprehends in one experience the cleansing of the heart from sin and the abiding indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, empowering the believer for life and service. Entire sanctification is provided by the blood of Jesus, is wrought instantaneously by grace through faith, preceded by entire consecration. What does that mean? That means you get to this point where you have completely consecrated yourself to God and then he blesses you with this instantaneous gift where you become sinless. You don't commit any more intentional sins. And then it says, and to this work and state of grace, the Holy Spirit bears witness. So he will tell you that you've reached that. And then it says, this experience is also known by various terms representing its different phases, such as Christian perfection, perfect love, heart unity, the baptism with or the infilling of the Holy Spirit, full, the fullness of the blessing, and Christian holiness. So there's all those terms kind of floating around in those circles, those kind of churches, okay? So that's a pretty clear statement of their belief. It really is. It's very well written, actually. It's thought through. They're very clear in saying what it is. So why isn't that in our doctrinal statement? Why, why isn't that idea of Christian perfectionism in our doctrinal statement? Well, that's a good question, and the answer is really easy, because none of us in this room are perfect. And before we get to heaven, none of us in this room will be perfect. We will not be completely sanctified. It's not going to happen. None of us have perfect love. Raise your hand if you have perfect love. See? That's why it's not in our doctrine. Now, maybe we're just not getting it all wrong. No, we're not getting it all wrong. That's what the Bible teaches. We're going to walk through that a little bit. So um, the Bible just doesn't teach anything like entire sanctification or entire consecration as even attainable in this life. And that's why we back away from that. In fact, the Bible says, hmm, 
If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if we say present tense, we don't have any issues with sin, it's gone out of our lives, then we're deceiving ourselves. The practical result of this teaching, it has fruit. Every, every wrong doctrine has fruit. And this one is, what happens if I claim to be perfectly sanctified? If I say, I've had that experience, the Holy Spirit told me I was perfectly sanctified, I don't sin anymore. What happens? What will I never admit to? A sin. Yeah, when I do sin, I'll never admit it. I'll always make excuses. I'll always blame other people. I will be the master excuse maker. I will be the ultimate blame shifter. I actually have a dear friend that works for a Christian ministry that is run by Nazarene people. He says it is impossible for them to ever admit that they've done something wrong. It's, it's impossible because that, that just, it becomes part of the culture. Even if they don't claim entire sanctification, it, it sort of feeds into a, a, an attitude. And it's interesting that the holiness churches are some of the most legalistic churches. I mean, make lots of rules. Now, you'd think if you were entirely sanctified, you wouldn't need rules. But they make lots and lots of rules. That, and uh, it becomes kind of an oppressive environment, you know. But it's, it's just a hard situation to do Christianity right when you have a wrong doctrine like that. And there's nobody really to stand up and say because it's a, it's a subjective experience. You say, I've had this experience. I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly sanctified. So it's really hard to stand up and say, hey, Bob, you know, I don't think you've had that experience of entire consecration and entire sanctification. I think maybe you under, misunderstood the experience you had because I see this in your life. Well, Bob's going to say, you're wrong. It's wrong. The Lord told me I, I had this. The Holy Spirit told me I had this. So you can't get very far with that because it's a very subjective kind of a thing there. There's no external authority to verify that you've become entirely sanctified. It's all up to you to say that. So you're not going to listen when people tell you. But honestly, the Nazarene church um, and most of those sort of kind of quiet, low-key perfection churches they don't make too much noise, and they're kind of insular, so we don't hear much about them unless we're actually born into it or have, have a lot of family and stuff like that into it. So it's not really a big problem, like in the church at large. They don't influence other groups very much. But the real problem is with people who say they have no sin, who are celebrity preachers in the very far-flung edge of the Pentecostal world, the holiness Pentecostal movement. That's where the real danger is because those are very famous teachers that you guys even might listen to sometimes or follow. So you've got to be really careful about that kind of a thing. Bethel Church up in Redding, California, um, which is the home of the new apostolic reformation. We've talked about that in here, very dangerous teaching. Yes, they say they're apostles as well, but um, they have some very prominent folks who claim to be sinless to be um, have reached this level of perfection and they don't use careful theological language like the Nazarenes do they just kind of throw it out there in their own in their own way they love to point to themselves as examples of everything that's great in the kingdom of God so uh, obviously they're that's they're gonna be very attracted to say um, we're sinless so I don't know if you guys know who Todd White is. He's, he's one of their guys. He has really long dreadlocks, and um, he goes on the street and does the phony leg lengthening trick thing. And um, he, says, he says things. He doesn't use 
Nazarene language, but he says things that can only lead you to conclude that he is a sinless person. Now, he actually is a charlatan and a heretic in, in many ways. He has really weird doctrines, but he does claim that, and he's very, very popular. I mean, very popular. He said in his sermon, I'm going to quote him, I'm going after Jesus with everything that I have, and he says I can be like him. People say, you can't, but you're wrong, because the Bible says to follow him. Now, that's true the Bible says to follow him, but the reason the Bible says to follow him is because we're not, right? It, to, to give somebody a command doesn't mean you're keeping the command. So that's just a, it's a logical problem. It's an English language problem. It's just s silly. That's a, that's a form of scripture twisting because say, Jesus saying follow me doesn't mean you're doing it perfectly. doesn't mean that. You know, there's a whole lot of other things to consider when you talk about that idea. So... Um, he says it because we aren't. Anyway, he goes on. He says, Jesus came and gave me this blank canvas. And he goes like this, blank canvas. He came and gave me this pure heart, and I've never violated it with anything. Yeah. Amen. He said, you can have the word so strong inside of your heart that you never have to slip. People say, that's false. That's not true. Well, you're wrong. I live with me. That's what he said. And then he said, I'm not holier than thou. I just love Jesus. Pause 24-7. That's what he said. I just love Jesus 24-7. Look, I love Jesus. And in a very broad way, you could say I love Jesus 24-7. But there are times when I'm not loving Jesus the way I'm behaving. I mean, and that's just true of every Christian. I lose my temper. I get mad at my wife. I, you know, I, I, I get petty. I mean, all of us sin. We all sin. <laughs> Listen, if, if, you read, if you read church history, um, there's a lot of incredible Christians that have lived down through the ages in many lands and in many places all over the world. None of them would say something like that. None of them. They are all, to the last man or woman, acutely aware of their own sinfulness. And these are people that have very high standards and strive and go to the mat to try to live those standards, but know that they fail all the time. Those are the great saints of the church. We are all on a journey in sanctification. None of us have arrived. And even if we're not really cognizant of any sins that are particularly plaguing us, we all have blind spots, too so that other people see sins in us that we're not even aware of. So all of that's going on in the real Christian life. But we have famous preachers that have no understanding of that. Joyce Meyer, a very popular prosperity gospel preacher, she, she said one time, I'm just going to quote her again, not to, not to tear her down, just because this is pe what people are teaching and people are reading their stuff. All I was ever taught to say was I was a poor, miserable sinner. I am not poor. I am not miserable. And I am not a sinner. That is a lie from the pit of hell. That is what I were. This is her grammar. <laughs> that is what I were. And if I, still, if I still was, then Jesus died in vain. I'm going to tell you something, folks. I didn't stop sinning until I finally got it through my thick head that I wasn't a sinner anymore. And the religious world thinks that is heresy. Yes, we do. And they want to hang you for it. Only a little bit. 
But the Bible says that I am righteous, and I can't be righteous and be a sinner at the same time. <sighs> Choice. <laughs> no, no. The great, the great truth of the gospel is that you are a person who still sins, and at the same time, you are righteous in the eyes of God because of what Jesus did for you, because of the blood of Christ. That is the gospel. Here's a famous, famous preacher who doesn't understand the basic truth of the gospel, just doesn't understand it. Now, she has no education, and it shows, but, but, um, but she's very popular, very popular. Listen, Peter was a sinner. Paul was a sinner. All the guys in the New Testament are sinners. And they were after they were converted. They were after they were apostles. They were on the missionary field. They, they were not horrible sinners, as far as we know, but they were sinners. Paul confronted Peter. Paul got called out by the high priest for blowing his top. <laughs> Every letter in the New Testament is written to correct sinners who are righteous in Christ. They are forgiven by the blood of Christ, they put their faith in Christ, they are washed clean, they're in God's eyes, they are holy before his throne, but they're still sinners. So the, New Test the whole New Testament is written to tell people to stop behaving like they're, they're the world, you know, because it's a challenge. It's a, we still have our flesh, and we, Satan's still after us, and all of that. Just one example, I just grabbed one out of the, out of the air here. Um, Ephesians was written to the, Ephesians was written to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul's writing a letter to saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. What does he tell them to do? Well, here's Ephesians 4.28. He who steals must no longer steal, <laughs> but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth but only such a word as is good for edification, for building up others according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You are saved. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. You are born again. You are changed. You've got your destiny is, is for heaven. So stop grieving the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so you can be a sinner and righteous at the same time, just in two different ways. Those are two different things. You are righteous in Christ, and now you've got to live up to that. You've got to live what that's supposed to mean for your life. Blood-bought saints can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. But you know, in, in some of these sort of fringe Pentecostal circles, not all Pentecostals, there are Pentecostals that would totally reject all this stuff I'm saying, I'm not knocking them, but there's fringe elements of that, and Bethel Redding is one of those fringe elements. There's, there's a need to have people think that the preacher is a superior being, that he has conquered sin, that he has powerful gifts that you will never have. That's, that's how they make their riches and how they get this great power over people. And people elevate them. People hang on every word they say. They send them lots and lots of money. And even their vast wealth, to them, they point to their vast wealth and says, that's proof. That's the proof that I'm, I'm blessed by God. I'm God's favored. I have God's favor because of all this wealth. I've conned people into sending me. It, it's, a, it's a vicious uh, thing going on there. Both Todd White and Joyce Meyer live in mansions that the Queen of England would, would think is impressive. <laughs> You know, 
And Joyce is right. She's not poor. She's right about that. But when she says, and I do, I'm not a sinner, that's, that's not true. She's deceived. She's either self-deceived or it's a lie that she's telling. Are some people farther along in sanctification than other people? Absolutely. Our, our Christian life should be one of progress always. Moral progress, spiritual progress. But let me tell you a little secret. The ones that make the most progress in sanctification are the last ones to boast about their progress. They would not do that because they know. They know their own sinfulness. The more godly you are, the more aware of your sins, you, your, your own sins that you have. I'm sure you've experienced that. When you came to Christ, you didn't realize you knew you were a sinner, but you had no idea. And as you grow in Christ and read the Bible and let the Holy Spirit speak to you, he starts revealing sin in you that you had no idea you had. I was like, oh boy, that is, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a wretch. That's why you can sing Amazing Grace with such gusto. Because he saved a wretch like you and me. The more godly you are, the more aware of your sins you are. I was listening to a sermon this week by Alistair Begg, who um, was, he gave this sermon recently to a pastor's group, and he quoted Martin Luther. Now, Martin Luther's life was in jeopardy from the Pope for many years. I mean, he, he was always expected to be killed. And Luther said this. He said, I am more afraid of my own heart than of the Pope of Rome. For in my own heart there dwells that great pope, self. See, a, a godly man understands that. And then Alistair Begg, after quoting Luther, he said, I think without any sense of rhetoric or trying to be clever that there is no doubt in my mind that in the space of time that I have been involved in pastoral ministry, and he's been, in, he's been a pastor longer than I have, probably 40 years, no one has given me greater trouble than me. I am my own biggest problem. That's the guy to follow. That's the guy to follow because he understands. That is, a, that is a godly perspective on self. That's a man worth listening to. Truly godly people never boast in their godliness because they know. They know that as good as they... As, as, as much progress as they may have made, there's so much more to do. They know that, that there's sin in them. They fight their sin. Godly people humble themselves before the Lord, and they follow the path of sanctification. They don't lie to themselves. Paul said something really interesting to the Corinthians about his own life. He, you know, he worked on his holiness. He says, I beat my body, you know, to, um, he compares, he compares sanctification to an athlete's training. That's how he regarded the need to, defeat sin in his own life. And he identified his sins as best he could, and he confessed them, and he fought them. But when he told the Corinthians about his own life, he did not say, Jesus came and gave me a blank canvas. He came and gave me a pure heart, and I've never violated it with anything. Paul did not say that. He did say, 2 Corinthians 10, 17, he wisely says, he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. That's really important. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul said, you know, at this point in my life, he said, I'm conscious of nothing about myself that I haven't dealt with sin-wise. He said, but that doesn't mean anything because the Lord's the ultimate judge and he knows me better than I know myself. He would never boast about that. 
Boasters are fools, so you need to run from boasters. So John writes these words to protect us from being led astray by, by false teachers and spiritual grifters, really, that deceive people about their sinlessness because they want people to think of them as better than them, as higher. And that's how they gain control over people and how they gain a lot of wealth. The Bible says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So what is the truth? We don't want to deceive ourselves, right? So what's the truth? The truth is we do have sin. And I'm just going to throw some Bible verses at you. You can jot them down if you want to. But the Bible says, Proverbs 20, verse 9, Who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin? Ecclesiastes 7.20, There is not one just, for there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. There are just men and they are good men, but they don't, they're not sinless. They do sin. James 3.2 Think about this. Here's Jesus' brother, James, writing in the New Testament. He says, for we, this is James 3, 2, we all stumble in many things. And you hear Christians say that. We all stumble in many ways. That's true. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. And then he says in verse 8 of James 3, he says, no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless Evil, full of deadly poison, right? Isn't that the hardest thing for most people, the tongue? Now, some people keep quiet and all their nastiness is in their heart. But most of us let it out sometimes, and it's in our mouth. He says we all stumble in many ways, but usually it's our mouth where we blow it, and we offend God, and we hurt people, and we lose our sanctification. That's really important. So we all stumble. Nobody has a mouth that does not sometimes reveal a wicked heart. We're all works in progress. Completion will come when we're glorified and not before that. Our sins should grieve us and we should labor to put to death sin in us and pursue righteousness. As Paul tells Timothy, pursue righteousness, chase it. Because it pleases God and he deserves to be pleased by us. Who are we not to please him? How dare we not please him? But here's what we do. 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, ah, there's the path. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So why, why pretend we're sinless when we have such a great and compassionate Savior who is ready to forgive. We don't need to do that unless we're putting on a show for other people. He is ready to forgive. And the word confess here, it means to agree. That's what that word actually means, to say the same thing. We agree with God about what we're doing. And we ask him to give us the same horror of what we're doing that he has. He doesn't like it. He hates sin. And then seek his forgiveness. William MacDonald says, I think he says this beautifully, we must confess our sins, sins of commission, sins of omission. You can sin by doing something and sin by not doing what you're supposed to do, right? Sins of thought, sins of act, secret sins, and public sins. We must drag them out in the open before God and call them by their names and take sides with God against them. 
and forsake them. That's a beautiful way to describe what it means to confess your sins. It's so accurate. It's exactly right. Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them, he will find compassion. God is ready to forgive. Now, if you're born again and you are God's child, this forgiveness is a, is a parental kind of forgiveness. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1 says, you are, not you are not standing before the throne of judgment when you come to God to confess your sins. You're standing before dad. You're standing before your father. It's a parental thing. Jesus has paid the penalty for your sins. If you're a Christian, there's no condemnation, but you must come clean with the father to be right with him. So he can forgive you. Don't take advantage of dad. You come to him. And he has a father's way of holding us accountable, you know? Consequences. He disciplines us, the book of Hebrews says, for our good. He does discipline sin if we don't deal with it. So keep your relationship clean with him through confession of sin. Acknowledge it. Own it. Own what you do. Own your mouth. Own the heart behind your mouth. And confess it before him. If you never do that as a Christian, if you literally don't take your sins before him and agree with him about it and ask him to help you fight it and to forgive you, and you're never going to grow. You're never going to grow. You're going to be stuck. But if you make it just doing what John says here, if you do that, confess your sins, he will cleanse you and forgive you. Okay. That's where we are. Let's wrap it up real quick with verse 10. We're kind of out of time here. But, um, so there's, here's the third one. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So here, where we have not sinned is not the present tense. This is the perfect tense. So this means in the past idea. It's that kind of an idea. This indicates, this is a claim that I have never sinned. I, I don't sin. So saying, the, the, first, the second claim is saying, I don't sin anymore. And this claim is saying, I've never sinned. Absolutely, I just never. It could be saying that there's no such thing as sin. And that might be more possible here. Because who would claim to be sinless? I don't know, but people are doing it anyway. And you know, in verse 8, John is very generous to the person. He says, maybe they're self-deceived. He says that you deceive yourself. What they're saying is not true, but maybe actually they think they've stopped sinning. But to say there is no sin, I have never sinned, what does that mean? It means I'm making God a liar because God says that everyone has sinned. So you're making him a liar. We don't have a scripture verse about you and whether you've stopped or not. So you might be self-deceived. But the Bible says everyone has sinned. So if you say you've never sinned, you're a liar and you're lying about him. That's serious. It's all serious, but that's really serious. <laughs> Isaiah 53, 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned aside to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on the Messiah. Psalm 14, 2, the Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then Paul quotes Psalm 14 in Romans chapter 3 to say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? 
So clearly, if we say there is no sin, or we've never sinned, the word is not in us. The word is not in us. We are declaring ourselves outside of the word of God. We're declaring ourselves incapable of salvation. We are lost if we stay in that place there. Now again, if you're a materialist, like I talked about at the beginning here, of course there's no sin. There's no virtue either. There's nothing good or evil. It's just, that's just the way the world is. The physical world is all there is. Biology is all that we are. We just happen to have larger brains, so we have this illusion or fiction that there's morality and right and wrong, which of course just isn't true because nothing is objectively right or wrong. If you're a materialist, that's what you have to believe. There is no good or evil. That is actually one of the big reasons I believe in Christianity completely because that's so ridiculous. That is so obviously untrue. We don't, Christians don't have to pretend that reality is a fiction. We're all deeply wired to believe in good and evil. When somebody wrongs you, it's evil. They've done wrong. It's not that, that is not a constructive behavior. It's not that. They've wronged me. They lied about me, they destroyed my reputation, they attacked my character, that was evil. We all react that way. Even if philosophically you believe there's no such thing as evil, you act like there's evil. Every human does. And Christianity tells why. Because we're made in the image of God, and he is a moral being, and we're moral beings too. We cannot help but see the world as good and evil, and moral, moral, a moral interpretation of life. We're inextricably wired to be moral creatures, and we all know that we fail. We all know that we failed to be all that we think we should be. Not just Christians, but anybody that's honest with themselves knows that they have failed to be what they admire or what they think they should be. So I don't spend a lot of time telling people they're sinners. I just assume that they know and I treat them like they should know it. And probably, because probably inside they do, unless they're totally dense. But we all disappoint ourselves. So what, what's, the, what's the final conclusion here? There is sin. It's real. There is a holy God who judges sinners. I am a sinner. And then there's really good news. Good news. First John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Wow. There's a couple of really good sermons in there, and we'll start one of them next week because <laughs> we're out of time. Let's pray. Amen. Father, I pray we would avoid anyone who claims to be perfect. Father, we know we have sin. It's in our flesh. It remains in us, even those who love you, a bent toward self. As Paul says, our spirit and flesh are at war with one another. We know that Christ is sufficient for everything, that he bore our sins, all of them on the cross, even the ones we are battling with today, this morning, because he is an all-sufficient Savior. But he also profoundly wants us to be holy in the way we conduct ourselves. So the battle with self, Lord, you know it's on. And we ask you to help us wage it by the power of the Holy Spirit with humble hearts. You are our Father, our Holy Father, and your love 
desires our progress in faith, our progress in hope, our progress in love. So challenge us, Lord. Expose our blind spots. Humble us. Do your perfect work in us. And thank you for our forgiveness that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our perfect Savior. Amen.